dance before the Lord. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Shalom and welcome to the Mikra e Kodesh Holy Convocation series. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. The written commentary of this particular study was updated on April 11th of 2006. The theme verse for my Mikra e Kodesh series is Leviticus 23.1, which in English reads, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai, which you are to proclaim as holy convocations, are my designated times. The Hebrew says, Va'idaber Adonai el Moshe leimor, Daber el b'nei Yisrael, va'amarta alehem. Moade Adonai Asher Tikra U Otam Mikra E Kodesh Elehem Moadai. This um, study will focus on the festival known as Unleavened Bread or Chag Hamatzah. Um, we read in Leviticus 23.6, On the fifteenth day of the same month is the festival of Matzah. For seven days you are to eat Matzah. Well, the festival known as Hamatzah follows immediately after Pesach, and that's why it shows up everywhere uh, in my commentaries right on the heels of Passover. Passover is celebrated on the 14th day of the Jewish month known as Nisan, um, and the 15th is Hamatzah. As the Torah so clearly instructed uh, the offspring of Avraham uh, in the Torah, the passages that we read, all bread products eaten during the observance was to be Matzah. So, the natural question to ask, if you don't already know, is, what is matzah? Well, matzah is the name of the bread eaten by our ancestors as they hastened to leave Egypt during the Passover deliverance. If you'll remember, um, the Pesach, the Passover uh, itself, was the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And so, um, they ate the Passover lamb in haste. They ate the Passover lamb with their belts girded about their waist, their, hand, uh, their uh, stabs in their hand, their f- shoes on their feet. This is what Hashem instructed our ancestors. Eat it because the Passover is to commemorate you getting out of Egypt. And so they didn't have really have time for their dough to rise. And um, rising dough is an implication of an ingredient in dough that we're going to talk about a little later on in our commentary. But at any rate, this bread is known by its familiar flat shape. 
um, flat symbolizing that it did not have time to rise. Typically, um, this doesn't mean that every flat bread that we see today is matzah, but if you are um, able to go to any store during the season or the week of Passover, like say a grocery store or something to that effect, you can easily find matzah, especially if it's a larger grocery store. I don't know if all the smaller stores are carried. But matzah these days is usually square. And it's got uh, lots of holes in it. It looks like a giant uh, saltine cracker or something to that effect. Uh, it's usually, what, maybe 5 or 6 inches by 5 or 6 inches square. Um, but that doesn't say that the matzah of that day was flat and crispy. It was it was probably round and it was probably soft, but it was most definitely probably flat. And uh, again, this owes to the fact that no time was allowed to let it rise like ordinary bread. Now you can read Exodus 12.34 and you'll see that the description of the bread is given surrounding the event of the fact that they did not have time to let it right, uh, uh, rise. We're going to find out later on that it is a natural occurrence of bread to rise if it's one of the five grains that we're going to introduce in a moment. So let me borrow a few notes from my Pesach commentary so that we can um, get an idea of what um, how matzah it, it, it comes to be first. The Encyclopedia Judaica explains that biblical yeast was not altogether different from the yeast that we find today. After all, Yeast is a natural product. It's not something that modern science has created. Yeast is a living thing. It's something that God created. Yeast consists of any group of minute, one-celled ascomycetes fungi, which produce alcoholic fermentation in saccharine fluids. As such, um, they, the yeast, um, the, 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 the yeast fungi, they grow very quickly in a liquid containing sugar. This speaks, of course, of Hashem's design, not the Scientology of synthetics. It's not man that came up with this, although man now has the ability to synthesize many of the things that God originally created. And so we do have a great number of synthetic products. I'm quite sure we probably have synthetic yeast as well. Um, I, I can't be certain I'm not a cook, but uh, uh, I wouldn't put it past man. At any rate, um, there's an informative article on leavening agents that can be viewed at the link in my commentary. It's basically at um, homecooking.about.com slash food slash homecooking slash library slash weekly AA uh, 072197.htm question mark IAM equal sign MT ampersand sign the word terms equal sign percent sign the number 2 the capital letter B and the word leaven L-E-A-V-E-N or just click on the link in my written commentary it'll take you to the path, uh, take you to the uh, article there after I read the article I thought it was fairly informative given the topic that I'm discussing today at any rate the passage is in question regarding the um, prohibition of matzah during the week of unleavened bread speak to one of the five grains that could possibly leaven in the presence of simply water and time and what are those five grains well today we recognize them as wheat barley oats rye and spelt these five grains seem to have the capacity to ferment given the presence of water or i should say given the addition of water and the presence of enough time um, typically what we're what I'm describing here is what we would 
term today as a yeast culture. We would take one of these five grains, we would add a certain amount of water to it, we would mix it or knead it, and then we would usually set it in the bowl and cover it and let it just sit there. And by letting it sit there at room temperature, um, it will begin to ferment on its own. God designed it that way. This is what God is saying. Do not allow this fermentation process during this week of unleavened bread. Now, the mitzvah primarily has to do with the baked goods, my quote goes on to say. But the mitzvah does say to remove all leaven from your houses, does it not? Okay, you can read Exodus twelve nineteen through 20 to see that it says no leaven is to be found among your houses. But in Deuteronomy 16, 3 and 4, um, there are two Hebrew words that are used to describe biblical leaven as we've come to know it. The first one is the familiar word chametz, um, transliterated as C-H-A-M-E-T-Z. And that is what we now know as, or it's defined as, dough from one of the five grains that has been allowed to ferment on its own and create yeast from which bread may be baked afterwards. However, there's another Hebrew word that we're not as oft to speak of, at least in Messianic circles, perhaps maybe in, in um, uh, traditional Judaic circles where Hebrew is the language of everyday uh, people. But in many Messianic circles, many people know of matzah, but many people don't know what seor is. Seor, which is spelled transliterated, um, letter S-O-R. And that is defined as what I've um, deem or the standalone ingredient usually defined as yeast or perhaps if there was a way for us to scientifically extract the yeast that um, is created as a result of the fermentation process then we would call that standalone product uh, you know the end result we would call that yeast so what we're what we're beginning to see is that chametz refers to the dough or the 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 um, the grain plus the water plus the yeast that's created as a result of that um, scientific um, occurrence. However, um, soor is what we might call the ingredient yeast on its own. Now, given that definition between the two Hebrew words, we can today go to the store and buy packets of yeast. As I mentioned, possibly that yeast is um, natural, possibly it's orga- it's it's a created, uh, a synthetic yeast. I'm not sure either one, either way. Maybe someone would like to write in to me and tell me whether or not um, the yeast that you can buy at the store, the standalone product and the little packages that you can actually add to um, to your dough, whether or not that's a synthetic product or whether or not that is the natural yeast that, that scientists have now extracted from um, the fermented dough itself. But either way, what we have is a commandment that seems to speak first and foremost historically to the breaded products, and that's what I want to say first and foremost as we do this study, is that those people who are wishing to fulfill the commandment and they want to take a sincere approach, that would include removing anything which will defile the conscience as they understand the breaded products would. Uh, Clearly the commandment is focusing on the breaded products. With that being said, let me give you an example. Let's suppose I have in my cupboard a, a box with uh, cornmeal in it, okay? Now, I can make cornbread from cornmeal if I follow the instructions, the recipe. However, cornmeal itself is not one of the five grains, and it is not known to ferment on its own. To be sure, if I add water to cornmeal and stir it and let it sit there, hoping to get some type of a yeast culture, what I'll end up probably with is rot instead of um, yeast. There might be a little bit of fermentation going on, but generally speaking... um, 
I'm going to get rot. And so, as I understand reading the passage, I'm not really required to remove the cornmeal from my house. To be sure, I'm not even really required to remove dry flour from my house. Does that make sense so far? Flour that has not been brought into contact with water is not going to run the risk of fermenting. So I don't need to focus on getting rid of the dry um, um, product itself. It's only if I've brought that grain into contact with water, um, one of those five, that I need to worry about the yeast uh, forming. And so if you've already got a yeast culture going, well then definitely you need to get rid of that. But the question always arises every year, should I get rid of the... um, say, pastas that I have in my house that are like made with seminola, which is a wheat flour. Um, um, were those pastas, um, were they allowed to uh, ferment before they were turned into pastas, before they were dried? If that is the question at, 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 on the table, um, then and if you know that it has been allowed to, well, then I suggest you get rid of it. But for many people, um, the question is still there. For instance, again, should I get rid of the standalone yeast product? According to many um, people who've done studies on Hamatzah and the festival and the details surrounding it, getting rid of that yeast product, the standalone version, the Sa'or, is not required according to the biblical command. However, again, many people would view that as the presence of yeast in their own home because that's the normative understanding of the verse. So here's my halakhic suggestion, okay? Because I think that's where some of you suggest that I'm going with this study. I believe that a sincere approach includes removing anything which will defile the conscience. Alright? If you look at it and it says yeast on it, <clears throat> and um, you believe that it is yeast, and, and as you understand the ingredient to be describing a yeast product or a leavening product, a leavening agent, um, as you read your, the ingredients and the labels, well then get rid of the product if that's the way you understand um, the product to be uh, defined. However, don't expect everyone to follow the um, the, the, the pleading of your conscience. Um, everyone has different ways of interpreting. Well, I don't want to say interpreting, but everyone has de- different ways of interacting with uh, certain words and certain products that they come up against. Um, so, for biblical purists... This might include only the grain products. I have a good friend um, who will only remove the grain products. He will not remove the standalone product known as yeast. But for the ultra-sensitive, again, this might include the standalone product that we now know as yeast. And if that's how you see it, then who am I to say, uh, don't worry about it, okay? That's my halakhic um, suggestion. All right. Those who know their way around the kitchen understand that it is the yeast in the bread dough that causes it to rise. It's the fermenting of the dough that causes the bubbles, which causes the dough to expand. And this was the missing ingredient in our ancestors' matzah. It is the very ingredient commanded to be left out during this feast to which this very day we celebrate. Take time to read the additional passage in Exodus 12, 14-20, as well as any subsequent passages that mention unleavened bread. I can tell you right off the top of my head, Exodus 12 is the starting point, but move from there to Leviticus 23. <clears throat> uh, move to Leviticus chapter 23, as well as to Numbers chapter 9 and Numbers chapter 28, and then don't forget Deuteronomy chapter 16. You'll find that these uh, passages all have a barrens, all, all have a... a, um, a um, Uh, some important details to add to the discussion of unleavened bread. Now, at this point, let me just turn and speak homiletically. Why leaven? 
Why is God asking us to remove leaven from our homes? Well, it's not a secret now, both in Jewish and in Christian circles, that leaven is a word picture representing sin. In that picture, then, we are the bread. We are the dough. From the day that the people left Egypt, um, they were on a divine intercept course with a holy one, which would eventually culminate in the glorious giving of his teaching, his Torah, on Mount Sinai, if you'll recall. They were taken out of Egypt so that they could be brought in. Or you could say they were brought out so that they could be brought in. Um, the former events, the Passover and the unleavened bread in the passages, signified the putting off of the sin that separated them from fellowshipping with their soon-to-be husband. Conversely, the latter event, the giving of the Torah, signified the new spirit-led relationship which the people would learn to walk in. So, it's timely, therefore, that the second step in putting off of sin should occur after deliverance, that is, the Passover. It should occur after the deliverance, but before the spiritual wedding ceremony, which is known as Pentecost. So, Passover comes first, that's the deliverance. Unleavened bread comes next, that's the putting off of sin. And then the giving of the Torah occurs, and conversely, the giving of the Spirit, which is Pentecost. I didn't mean to skip first fruits on there on purpose. We'll talk about that in my different study. So with these three events or with these uh, truths in mind, putting off of sin and putting on of our new relationship with God, let's apply these principles to our everyday lives. Now while it's true that when a person comes to accept Yeshua as Messiah, uh, it's true that Hashem accepts them as they are. In essence, um, <clears throat> God accepts people with the sin included. God does not say first cleanse yourself of sin, and then come unto me. It's quite the reverse. All we like sheep have gone astray, each man to his own way. Um, none of us approaches God on a sinless basis. God actually reaches into our sin and affects a deliverance that we could not otherwise affect on our own. Um, so he does accept us with the sin included, and it's equally true that once the deliverance from sin takes place, in essence, once we are saved, we should, I'm not saying everyone does, but we should naturally begin the continuing process of what I call searching for and removing the leaven of sin from our lives. In other words, once justification takes place, which is salvation, then the process of sanctification is now a life long endeavor, okay? Removing sin from our lives. We're never going to be sinless until Yeshua comes back. But that doesn't mean that we have not been commanded to put away the leaven from our lives. This um, salvation and, and, and sanctification process leads to a genuine understanding of the subsequent indwelling and filling of the Ruach HaKodesh, the marriage that takes place, which should accompany our newborn freedom in Messiah. Oh yes, once you are saved, listen up people, listen up. Once you are saved under the genuine power of the Son of God, Yeshua himself, the Spirit takes up residence within you. There is no um, lacking of the Spirit's presence within you per se once you get saved. Now I'm not saying that there aren't subsequent marching orders or indwelling um encounters with the Spirit where He supernaturally or super 
supercharges you to go on specific missions here and there to accomplish um, tasks that the Father would ask you to do, things that you ordinarily would not be able to do under your own power. What I'm talking about, however, is that every person who is saved has the Spirit within them. Paul clearly expresses this in the book of Romans when he uh, explains to us that it is the Spirit within us that allows um, our spirit to cry, Abba, Father. We cannot know Yeshua without the indwelling spirit within us, okay? Don't let someone teach you otherwise. Why would the expulsion of sin, we may ask, produce a spiritual effect of of cultivating the spirit within us? Why is it that sin repels the spirit and vice versa? Well, because of the Torah's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which I want to read for us, uh, we can begin to get a picture of why we are commanded to get rid of sin within us. Let's go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 7, quote, Get rid of the old chametz, the old leaven, so that you can be a new batch of dough. Because in reality, you are unleavened bread. There we go. See, Paul is giving us the uh, picture there. He's saying that we are the bread. For our Pesach lamb, the Messiah, has been sacrificed. So let us celebrate the Seder, not with leftover chametz, the chametz of wickedness and evil, but with the matzah of purity and truth. End quote. Very easy to understand passage, uh, no matter which ber- version you read it in. I just happen to read it from David Stern's version because he puts the Hebrew terms back in there for us. So here in this passage, we learn that Chametz, leaven, was interpreted by uh, Rabbi Shaul, Apostle Paul, as a type of sin also. The leaven of sin, like its culinary counterpart, has the capacity um, to work its way into the complete dough of our lives. That is to say, sin, if we allow it to to to, fer, uh, to ferment within us, to permeate our lives, it expands and it rises until the whole loaf is permeated with sin. In other words, good apples don't turn bad apples good. It's quite the reverse. Bad apples affect good apples, and they turn bad, good apples into bad apples. And so, there's a very good lesson couched there in that verse for us. Among other lessons, if sin is present in our lives, and some sins are very grievous, other sins aren't as grievous. But sin is sin, and let's take it for what it is. If you know of grievous sins, if you know of pet sins that are in your life, well then the command and the um, the challenge is to 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 fall upon the mercy of the Lord and ask him to give you the power to begin to purge that sin out of your life. To be sure, it's not a monergistic work. God delivers us from salvation, from our own personal Egypt. God delivers us. That's monergistic. That's a that's a God working alone to deliver us from um, a state of being that we could not otherwise set ourselves free from. But once we are set free, the commandment is given that we press into a state or a um, a lifestyle that is consistently and constantly checking ourselves, crucifying ourselves daily, putting off the sins and the habits um, that once characterized our former lifestyles as sinners. And in that description, that's synergistic. That is a a dual work between ourselves and the Spirit of God within us. God doesn't expect us to do it on our own, and conversely, God is not doing it on His own. Rather, God empowers us to do it along with Him. 
you see the slight difference there. Justification and sanctification working hand in hand. This is why with the guidance of the spirit within us, the ruach within us, we need to remove all of the leaven from ourselves. Fall on the power of the spirit within you, the power of the word washing through your mind and through your, uh, through your, through your members to continue to empower you to walk away from sin. Just say no to sin, okay? You can do it with the power of the Spirit. You can't do it by yourselves. And don't expect the Spirit to do it if you're just going to sit back on your laurels and be lazy and say, okay, God, here I am. Clean me out. In a sense, God is going to say, no, Ariel, the Torah says, crucify yourself. Crucify your, uh, um, take up your cross daily. Why do I have to do it? You ask. Well, because that's the way the Bible designed the sanctification, uh, the sanctification process to take place. Will this result in a sinless life? No, it won't. Not this side of Yeshua's coming, that is. No, not yet. We need to um, uh, continually remind ourselves that it is a lifelong endeavor until the, uh, until the Messiah comes back. Yet our efforts will surely be rewarded in the form of a renewed and strengthened walk with our Lord. In other words, as long as we have these earthen vessels, our desire should be to flee from sin until we finally reach that blessed time when our Lord Yeshua will return in power and glory to cleanse us completely. Sin has a way of growing and growing until it results in what? A damaged relationship with our Heavenly Abba. And that's why we need to deal with sin at the earlier stages before it festers, before it grows. Get rid of the leaven while it's small. In his mercy and undeserved grace, um, God go- lovingly guides and allows us to perform our own, uh, how should we say, spring cleaning before it's too late for us to turn back from the destructive road that sin leads down. Yes, we need to deal with sin very, very early before it takes its toll in our lives. Ultimately, sin will re- will lead to death. It'll kill you. That's right, it'll kill you. In other words, his gentle leading and divine foresight saves us from ourselves. It saves us from the destruction that we bring on our own head. And that's something to rejoice about, Baruch Hashem. The wonderful reality that is ours is that the above-mentioned passages uh, in Exodus and as well as uh, Corinthians there um, directly associates us with unleavened bread. Did you catch it there? Paul calls us unleavened bread. Yeah, this is our new identity in Yeshua HaMashiach. This is our true identity. You see how that works? Paul's not just making up some fancy midrash. He's speaking under the power of the Spirit. His sacrifice, that is Yeshua's bloody sacrifice, redeemed us from the slavery of sin of spiritual Egypt. And and as a result, it changed our very constitution. We are actually a completely new batch of dough. And because we are a new, batch of, a new batch of dough, we need to walk like a new batch of dough. Rav Shaul is therefore instructing us to start living as if this reality has been internalized already. Because, indeed, it should be by now. In other words, what I'm saying is, not everyone who comes to Messiah instantly does a 180 degree turnaround from all their sinful habits and begins walking like the saints that we read about in, in, um, in history and in times gone by. We don't instantly become saints is what my point is. However, we are instructed to continue to press in to the righteous standard that the Bible expects of us. And so we can only do that if we realize that we have a new identity in Christ. His further instructions, the apostles, in this passage, act as an explicit teaching 
for the Messianic community of the first century as well as today not to neglect the divine invitation to observe the Passover, which is complete with Hamatzah, by the way. Let me just pause there. Do you guys catch what Paul's teaching us? After all, is not the verse saying, So let us celebrate the feast, or celebrate the Seder? Hello? Why have we, the body of Messiah, neglected this clear and simple instruction? These instructions should be applied to the body of believers today, without falling into the trappings of legalism and the like. That's where the point of contention rises between Messianic groups and traditional Christian groups. We all understand everything I'm teaching about Hamatzah and how it tip, typifies sin within a believer's life. And we all say, yes and amen, Ariel, that's great. Preach on, brother. But when it comes to um, the application of actually keeping the festival of Passover, I'm afraid that many churches traditionally have failed this part of the instructions. Oh, yes. Thankfully, however, many churches these days are re-embracing their Hebraic roots. I know this is true because I attend Passover Seders year after year, and they're not all done in my own Messianic congregation. Many of them are being done in churches everywhere around the world. And again, Baruch Hashem. I hope that each believer reading this article will at some time in his or her spiritual walk desire to attend a Passover Seder. I encourage each one of you listening to my podcasts, reading my commentaries, to expand your understanding of these biblical feast days. After all, they're God's feasts. They're not the feasts of the Jews. That's not to say that if you identify them as the feasts of the Jews, that that's a wrong thing, or that's a bad thing. Jewish people keep them, and so innately they are Jewish feasts. However, authoritatively, and from an ownership point of view, God owns them. We Jews don't own them. We don't. Uh, we we have no right to um, manipulate them and wield them in such a way as to forbid non-Jews from keeping them. Finally, with the feast of Hamatzah comes the understanding that only the Messiah Yeshua is the sinless Lamb of God. Only He is sinless. Now, in my opening statement to the commentary on Pesach, I stated that Yeshua literally fulfilled each of the first four feasts of Leviticus chapter twenty-three. So, with that understanding, you might ask, how did he fulfill matzah? How is he the Passover lamb and the, the unleavened bread? Well, we know how he's the Passover lamb, but how is he the unleavened bread? Well, aside from celebrating this feast with his Torah-observant family year after year, his body, that is us, the true bread from heaven, um, I'm sorry, let me back up, his own body, the true bread from heaven. Remember how he talked about it? He said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. In that in that parable there, the flesh that he's referring to is his own body. Sometimes we call the body of believers, the church, also his body. But there are two metaphors that are being used. His own body, which is the, blood, uh, which is the bread, and then the term body refers to um, the church at large. In this case, I want to talk about his own personal body. That is, um, the true bread from heaven. That, of course, was without leaven in any sense of the word. He was tempted, but he didn't sin. That's the big difference. His sinless life represents the heavenly matzah offered on Hashem's Passover plate, I like to imagine. Um, Because um, Yeshua 
was doing everything on earth in accordance with the truth of the heavenly originals. And if you remember, the tabernacle and the temple on earth represented the true tabernacle and temple in the heavenlies. And so when Yeshua kept the Passover, when he was the Passover lamb, well then I like to imagine that God recognized that his own son was the matzah, the unleavened bread. So during our earthly seders, we his body, we partake of the middle piece of the matzah. If you recall from the Passover Seder, this middle piece of matzah is also known by its Greek name, afikomen. It is this middle piece of matzah during the Seder that is um, it's hidden and redeemed uh, during the ceremony. Usually it's redeemed by the children, if you remember. Messianics, or Hebraics, understand this symbolism to represent Yeshua's unleavened body being placed in the grave, that is to say, hidden for three days and three nights, only to be redeemed, that is to say, rise again, by his resurrection power on high. So we hide the matzah, and then we redeem the matzah, or we bring it back into view. Just like Yeshua's body was hidden from us for three days, only to be brought back into view after, on the third day. We believers so aptly aptly capture this reality in our various communion services as well. I'm not saying that Christians have completely lost the symbology behind the Passover when they opt for keeping um, Easter ceremony instead. I don't think there is anything um, wholly redeemable in Easter. Uh, It has its pagan trappings and it has its problems. It's better if we were to return uh, to the Passover feast just like Paul recommends. and recognize his death rather than ignoring his death and, and focusing on his resurrection only. Um, but any, at any rate, I'm not here to talk about that in this commentary. A different commentary, a different time. Let us celebrate the festival of Hadmatzah with joy, okay? Because we are partaking in the bread of his body, which Yeshua himself commanded that we do. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood... You cannot commune with me. You cannot partake in the gift that I'm giving to you. So let us joyfully thank the Lord that he has invited us to his table. Personal examination. Yes, every time we partake in communion, we personally examine ourselves. Because that's what Paul says, let a man examine himself. Take time during this Passover season to conduct a spiritual inspection of your walk with Hashem. Allow this spirit-led introspection to reveal where the leaven is hidden. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, O God, and know my thoughts. We should be asking the spirit to reveal uh, uh, the hidden parts of our heart that we can otherwise not search out. You may just be surprised to find out where the leaven in your life is hanging out. I know I am every year. Oh my gosh, is that what's inside of me? I know that it's a difficult thing to ask of you, but with the power of the Spirit within us, we can do it, people. We can begin to turn away from sin and begin to embrace the reality that is ours in Messiah, that we are the righteousness of God in His Son, and that we have been called unleavened bread. In order to make this time period more effective, we need to use the most effective tool for this job. The Spirit of God is the powerful tool that will be utilized to search out our lives. However, sometimes, and I'm not this is no fault of the spirits, but sometimes spiritual experiences can be subjective. Has God given us an objective tool that we can also use during this time period of introspection? I believe he has. 
And what tool is that? The Torah. That's right. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it can pierce into the dividing between joint and marrow. Um, um, it, it can search out the innermost um, intentions of the heart. And it's the tool of the Torah wielded by the hands of the Spirit which is able to perform this supernatural um, searching of our very hearts. The Torah in and of itself is powerless to effect that change. It's just pages on a word. Or, I'm sorry, words on a page. Um, it's just pages in a book is what I was trying to say there. It's just words on a page and pages in a book. However, in the hands of the Spirit, wielded by the Spirit of God, the Torah is a most powerful and effective tool. Our sin nature, our sin nature makes us prone to disobedience. The Torah of Hashem serves to remind us of how short we fall when we try to measure up to God's righteous standards. Now, while it is true that no one alive could have ever kept all the commandments of God, it's also true that Hashem never expected anyone to be able to. That's right. The Torah does not demand perfection. Else there would be no need for the bulk of the instructions outlined in the book of Leviticus concerning sacrifices for sin. No, the Torah does not demand perfection. What the Torah does is it allows for us to renew our relationship with God when we fall out of fellowship with our holy God. The Torah realizes that we are going to fail. And in our failure, the Torah provides us with a way to be reconciled to our Savior. And so... um. If you think about it, if we could ever achieve a state of total sinlessness, then we would have no need of a Savior. And conversely, we would have no need of a Torah. Now, perhaps in the future heavenly state, once we do reach that sinless perfection, the Torah's role will change dramatically. However, for now, what the Torah expects from its followers, listen up, is genuine, trusting faithfulness to the giver of the Torah, who is the Holy One of Israel. And today, that implies placing one's complete trusting faithfulness in His only unique Son, Yeshua, the true unleavened bread. Amen? Amen. With that, I wish you a happy festival of unleavened bread. Chag Sameach HaMatzah. And for further study, I recommend Exodus 19.10 as well as verse 14, chapter 28, verse 39 through 41, Leviticus chapter 8, verse 30, chapter 11, verse 44, as well as chapter 20, verse 7, Joshua 24, verse 14, um, and verse, um, as well as uh, verse 2. Uh, I'm sorry, let me try that again. Joshua 24, verse 14. 2 Chronicles 30, verses 15, as well as chapter 30, 35, verses 1 and 6. John 17, 17, as well as verse 19. Acts chapter 20, verse 32, as well as chapter 22, verse 16. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 through 8. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 2, as well as Ephesians 5:26, Ephesians 6:24, the book of Philippians, um, uh, let's see, chapter 1, verse 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, chapter 14, 
I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 and verse 14. And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Okay, Look up these verses during your time of, of uh, this Passover season and allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God to do a wonderful work in your lives this year. Amen, amen. I love you all. Bless you. Thank you. Have a good Sabbath. Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. Thank you.